What's your trouble? Nothing, but I've been through all this before. Welcome to the Obscure Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Njeri Mugudi. And on today's show, we talk about the blurry line between what is real and what is not. Have you ever had the events of your life play out in front of you? Like as if you were watching a movie of you doing the thing you're doing now. The feeling of eerie familiarity of events currently happening. Well, my friend, if you answered yes to any of these questions, sign here, 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 and here, then you're like 60% of the human population you have experienced. The quiet, that sound, I never knew what it was. Deja vu. Studying deja vu is hard because it occurs briefly, mostly 10 to 30 seconds. So a lot is not known about why we experience deja vu. In this story, we try to decipher what little is known about deja vu. Emile Borac, a French psychic, was the first to coin the term deja vu in his book L'Avenir des Physiques in 1876. Déjà vu is therefore a French term that means already seen. The opposite of déjà vu is jamais vu, which means never seen. Freud said that it was a result of repressed desires or memories related to a stressful event that one could no longer access. Moving on swiftly. There are about 40 theories that try to explain why and how déjà vu happens. We can broadly classify déjà vu into two. One, associative déjà vu. It is experienced by normal, healthy people like you and I, I assume. It is when you see, hear, or smell something that reminds you of something. Two, there's biological déjà vu, which is experienced by people with temporal lobe epilepsy, especially before a seizure, and seems very, very real to the person. There are people who experience chronic déjà vu, like the case of four UK citizens who have experienced déjà vu in a constant state. Scientists have determined that the medial temporal lobe is responsible for a conscious memory. Within this lobe are the parahippocampal gyrus, the rhinal cortex and the amygdala. The hippocampus, like we know, enables us to consciously recall events, and the parahippocampal gyrus enables us to determine what is familiar and what isn't. The highest rates of déjà vu occur to people between the ages of 15 and 25, and it decreases with age. Another fun fact is that wealthier people and travelers report higher instances of déjà vu. A study by Dr. Alan Brown and his colleague Elizabeth Marsh at Duke University and SMU, shows subliminal messages as a cause for déjà vu. What they did is that they took a group of students to a room and planned to ask them which locations were familiar. So a student would come in, sit down, and have a bunch of pictures Picture. shown Picture. to them. Picture. Picture. Every so often, 
a photo would be flashed at subliminal speed too fast for the brain to register having seen the photo. They found that these images that were shown at subliminal speeds very, very fast were more familiar than those that were not. Dr. Brown then suggested that cell phone theory from his tests. It suggests that we subliminally take in what is around us. So if you're looking at something specific, you're unconsciously also picking up whatever is around it. But we do not consciously register that we have done this. Then, some time later when we focus, those surroundings appear to already be familiar, although they shouldn't. When it was though, maybe yesterday But anyway, I was just sitting here chilling Bet I do like for all the time that I'm killing But that's okay, doing nothing is nice Give me one chance and I bet I do it twice It's kinda like deja vu It's kinda like deja vu It's kinda like deja vu, me and you Keeping me like summer skies always blue Not to say I'm not a happy man But realize you are always part of my plan Now all those daydream days are gone And I sit here wasting time writing songs Got nothing but that for something to do And tomorrow, another nothing deja vu 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 This next story is famously known as the Montreal Screwjob. It is a story about how reality tore through the veil of fantasy in front of the eyes of millions of observers. It's in the early 80s. And Vince McMahon, we all know Vince McMahon, I think, is building a wrestling empire known as WWF. He is busy buying promoters from small wrestling companies all over America. He soon ventures into Canada. At around the same time, there's a young Canadian man by the name of Bret Hart who is busy working for his father's wrestling promotion company. You need to understand that Brett is a natural-born wrestler. His father was a wrestler and his brother, Owen, is also one. He comes from a family of wrestling royalty. There are even tales of him wrestling a bear. Yeah. So when Vince buys his father's company, uh, Vince buys Brett's father's company, he takes with him his best wrestlers, including Brett. The year is 1984. As soon as Brett joins WWF, a huge scandal arises around steroid use in WWF. Vince is caught up and is desperate to rebrand WWF. He turns to Brett. Brett is a baby-faced small guy, so steroid use doesn't really fit his profile. Brett becomes the face of WWF. He is so good and so ruthless 
that he earns the name Brett the Hitman Hart. Vince turns him into a star and he soon goes down in history as the greatest in-house wrestler ever. 1995-1996, there's a major rivalry between WWF and WCW. WCW is Ted Turner's company and Ted is busy buying all the WWF superstars to put Vince out of business. Naturally, Ted approaches Brett and offers him a whooping $2.6 million to join WCW. Brett is now confused. I would be confused. You would be confused. $2.6 million is good money and we could all use some more money to be honest. It is life-changing money. But Brett sees Vince as a father. Leaving WWF at this time would be a kick to the nuts for Vince. Vince needs Brett, period. So Brett decides to stay. He approaches Vince and asks him to convince him to stay. Brett then offers Vince a counteroffer. But Vince, unfortunately, cannot afford it and Brett has to leave anyway. But the question becomes how? Brett is the superstar and he holds the championship belt. So how is Brett going to make an exit? At the time, the Survivor Series is coming up in Montreal. Montreal, as they will say. And the plan is to have Brett lose to the number two guy, Shawn Michaels. I think I'm cute. I know I'm sexy. Problem is, Brett detests Shawn Michaels. He thinks of him as an idiot with a prima donna personality. Also, a loss in Montreal, in Canada, is out of the question for Brett because he is a national hero. The likes of Justin Bieber and Drake and The Weeknd, those type of people. D-Day is here and there is still no solid plan. Minutes before the match, Brett suggests to Vince that the match should end in a schmoz. A schmoz is wrestling jargon for a disqualification. And then he, Brett, would surrender the belt the next day during Monday Night Raw. He shows up in the ring to face his worst nightmare, a man in spandex with hats on them, Shawn Michaels. Even before the bell, Shawn is all over Brett. They are brawling and fighting ruthlessly. It's all things chaos in front of the 20,000 spectators, most of them rooting for the Canadian, because this is Canada. And remember that all this is scripted. They fight outside the ring for a while, and then Red throws Sean back into the ring and gets on one of the corner posts, leaps into the air, and is heading straight for Sean like a human cannonball. Just before Brett lands, Sean very cleverly pulls the referee towards himself and uses him as a human shield. Brett hits the referee, the referee hits Sean, and all three men collapse on the floor. Bam! Normally, this would end in a schmoz, 
But before the referee gets up, Sean is up. He puts Brett in a sharpshooter. The sharpshooter was Brett's signature finishing move. And at this point, Sean is clearly mocking him real bad. Within seconds, the bell rings, Sean grabs the belt and runs. The crowd goes silent. Brett is confused. Genuine confusion. Then anger. This was not in the script. This is real. This is real life happening. Brett goes nuts. Wow! Frustrated into the goddamn word for it! This is bullshit! I'll apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Screw me! Everybody screws me! And nobody does a goddamn thing about it! Nobody in the building cares! Nobody in the dressing room cares! So much goddamn injustice around here! I've had it up to here! He destroys everything he can lay hands on. He jumps back into the ring and signals WCW over and over and over. When he gets backstage, he knocks out Vince and leaves. Things have gone chaotic. Red Hart, ladies and gentlemen, has gone berserk and... And this could be the end of WWF. What does Vince do? He talks about the one thing in wrestling you are never ever supposed to talk about. That it's fake. People barely got hurt. It was fake. Pretending they had broken bones. And faked agony. You tell the agony was fake, cause if you mark them, they would get angry and forget all about their injury after fire again. After the Montreal screw job, WWF adopts characters. Vince McMahon becomes Mr. McMahon. The characters in WWF become an extension of superstars in real life. Steve Austin becomes Stone Cold Steve Austin. Dwayne Johnson becomes Dwayne The Rock Johnson. This is it. This is when we stop separating the real from the unreal. WWF starts injecting the truth into their scripts and becomes what we now know as WWE. And in a way, watching wrestling is a sort of searching for what is real. Which part is the authentic truth? Because we are human and we are constantly searching for the truth. That is all for today guys. I hope you enjoyed the stories and all that jazz. Thank you for tuning in. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter at Obscure Stories. 
find me at Cheesy Ricky. Is this real or nah? Jerry signing out. Double love. Stay curious.